Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland, and John McManus. And, uh, well, I mean, John, the topic you want to talk about today, um, I'm sure we'll uh, immediately. Let's just get on with it because there's this, this going to be lots yeah, yeah, to talk yeah. about. And it's very, very. It's, it's, can, it's, I, can I just say the word? Yeah, go on. Bastone. <laughs> Bastone. Bastone. It's just a magical word, isn't it? I mean, you can't say it. You can't say it in a in a in a Belgian accent or a French accent or an English accent. It has to be Bastone. It does. Dramatic. So, so um, uh, uh, now, I mean, I think we we can. I think we can assume that people will know which campaign we're probably talking about. Um, uh, uh, no. think, but for those who don't know. For those those, who, those for two people who, who've never heard uh, of it, the Battle of the Bulge. Okay, Wacht am Rhein. Um, what what the the Arden offensive, second Arden offensive, I suppose. Um, but John, you particularly want to talk about the the rush for Bastogne, which to you is the which to you is the crux of the of the of of the matter. So do you want to just set set up set up how that how we arrive at that, and then and then take us through it because you've written yeah. about this, and I I I really fancy shutting up and listening um uh, yeah me too uh, uh, to what you have to say so john yeah. we're pressing the go button now <laughs> you'll, you'll really regret this i guarantee you but uh, <laughs> i really yeah, i mean you know a number of years ago it occurred to me that the actual siege of bastone you know with the 101st airborne and and all that yeah, yeah. and the, and the race of the fourth armored division to get to them and all that that it was actually kind of anticlimactic that really the whole you know crux of Bastogne had been decided several days earlier. Uh, so I, I wrote a book about that called Alum on the Ardennes. And basically you see that first three to four days of the bulge, um, the Germans are desperately trying to get to Bastogne and they only really need it because it's a crossroads town. That's going to be kind of a pivot point for that advance North for the whole purpose of this thing to get across the Meuse river to go to Antwerp and cut off uh, 21st army group from the Americans. Um, so Bastogne, I, I would argue, is really only going to be important to them if they can get it within the first two days, which is their blueprint. Um, and so, yes, because it's 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 all about getting the nodal points, isn't it? I mean, it is. You, you know, and 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 I'm really not going to say very much because I want to listen to you, but I am going to just say this. So, so <laughs> you, you know, when you think about 1940, I mean, what the what the French don't do is hang on to those nodal points. What do I mean by nodal points? I mean mean key positions which have to be taken for you to be able to move 
swiftly from A to B. So a crossroads, a railway junction, a bridge, you know, these are the nodal points. And so what you've got to do when someone's in a hurry is you've got to slow them down. So the best way to slow them down is is to, is to deny it to them and hold on for as long as possible. And it's actually the same, you can argue, for some wit, which does mm-hmm. fall to the Germans. It's unlike Bastogne, it, it, which never falls. It does fall. But they've been held up for four days or whatever, trying to get through some bit. And by that time, it's too late. The, you know, whereas in 1940, they absolutely do get to the River Mers in three days and across it in, in four and uh, on the fourth day. And, and so that's what then enables them to then spread out and kind of gush across the rest of France and get to the kind of you know, the Channel Coast in 10 days. Mm. That is not in place in the Battle of the Bulge. And that's because the Americans know this and they hold on to the key points when they do. And Bastogne is this, it's, it's like, all roads seem to meet in Bastogne. I mean, it's forget all roads meeting in Rome. Yep. It's they they you can see it's this absolutely crucial crossroads town. You have to have it for a mechanized offensive, uh, which this is, um, in in which you've got to move quickly, rapidly. Fuel's an issue. Um, weather is your cloak. Um, everything has to be done very quickly. It's your communication center too. That's the other thing about it. Um, so. Bastogne only makes sense for the Germans if they get it as quickly as possible, and their blueprint was the first couple of days. Um, the other thing about the terrain around it, and you guys know this, of course, from, from seeing it, I'm sure, um, there's a lot of choke point towns, not just Bastogne. Bastogne's first among equals, but all of these little places where um, it's surrounded by woodlands, uh, rolling ground, gorges, small rivers, and all this kind of stuff that that creates a, a real premium on on acquiring the road net and controlling a town in these various sectors. Um, and and so Bastogne is sort of like the lodestone of this whole thing. Seven roads meet there, uh, and so you know here's Fifth Panzer Army kind of having to use Bastogne as a pivot point. Okay, so. They hit a very thinly held part of the American sector. Um, and, and what's amazing about this to me is, oh, oh, it sticks with me to this day, is that much of it in the, in the kind of what I'll call the Bastogne Corridor near the Auer River and all that near the German border, um, much of it is held by the 28th Infantry Division, which had just been beaten to a pulp in the Hurtgen Forest. And so <laughs> imagine if you'd survive that nightmare uh, in November 1944, yeah. and now you're told you're going to go to this sector east of Bastogne because it's a quiet place. Um, it's a quiet place where you can refit and you can have a little R&R. You can welcome replacements. You can get back up to speed for whenever it is you're going to have that big push into Germany. Uh, of course, what happens instead, as of December 16th, um, you've got the better part of at least four, maybe six uh, German divisions converging on your area. Uh, and so the key at that point is to just, like Jim said, uh, hold the Germans up for as long as you can, uh, deny them time, uh, because the longer this this push for Bastogne goes on, the less valuable the town becomes to them, I would argue. Uh, yeah. So that by the time we have the siege on December 20th and 21st and thereafter, um, it's really now just a kind of symbolic objective, um, because you know, it's just kind of a bone in their throat at that point. It's it's almost yeah. more trouble than because it's, it's it's too late, isn't it? It's too late for them. They've yeah. they've, they've they've blown it. It's it's yeah. so completely dependent on them getting to where they need to get to on the timetable. And if you start skipping the timetable, everything starts escalating exponentially. And that's the that's the issue, isn't it? Does. it? 
because because it's not just the time that's going. The more time you spend, the more fuel you're using, the the, the further away you are from picking up those American fuel dumps that you were planning on taking. You know, they're being used by the Americans as well. Uh, you know, so everything is against you. You know, the, everything. And time, and time is is, is is your great enemy. If you're it is kind of like the allies with Market Garden in that yeah. sense. That right. I mean, Market Garden had to happen quickly. And yeah. if it didn't, now you're going to run into issues. Well, this is somewhat similar in that sense. Um, so what what struck me is the very human story of these poor guys who are out there terribly outnumbered in these kind of holding these choke point towns, um, you know, guys from the 28th Division primarily. Uh, but eventually you're going to have, you know, uh, reinforcements rushed into them. So like uh, CCR, of the 9th Armored Division, uh, mm-hmm. CCB of the 10th Armored Division, and of course, more famously, the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, that is a relative Johnny come lately to this battle. But you are being told, you know, like as a company commander, uh, basically outposting a town uh, that ought to be defended by a battalion, you're being told hold at all costs. Um, and I just think for a second what that means. You know, you've got guys who are just getting overwhelmed by these sort of enveloping German attacks. Um, and they're, you know, originally you'd be thinking, all right, well, we're, we'll just retreat. Uh, we'll get out of here. We'll live another day. But no, the, the order is hold at all costs. And what that means is we're going to sacrifice your life to buy ourselves the time and to, to disrupt the German timetable. And it's terrifically tragic and dramatic on a human scale in that sense Mm -hmm. um and that's that's what really absorbed me with with that story is what i felt had been a really overlooked part of it so which actions uh, really stand out for you john in particular um one that really stands out is at a place called marnock Uh, okay so this is luxembourg and that's really a big part of the bastogne corridor that that section of luxembourg just east of it um, and Marnock uh, is just east of a little town called Clairvaux, beautiful little yeah. resort town, um, you know, and it's a, and Clairvaux's tucked into this kind of valley between these two prominent ridges and, and Marnock is on the other side of, uh, of, of the ridge to the east. Um, and so you have B Company, the 110th Infantry Regiment that's uh, stationed there. And the soldiers of B Company have been like many of the other companies from the 28th Division outposting. Um, to the east. So that means like three to five of us go out during the day and kind of keep an eye on whatever is happening to the east. And then we come back and we sleep in the buildings at night and whatnot. Well, um, so they have picked up a lot of the German activity. You can't mass that number of troops and and tanks and whatever without betraying some sound and noise. And so you have this sergeant, this, uh, (laughs) this ranking company sergeant, uh, his name is J.J. Kuhn. He's from Wisconsin. And he has, in particular, picked up on a lot of this German activity in the days leading up to the bulge. Yeah. And he's convinced that none of his superiors really get the gravity of the situation. Yeah. Um, and so he, he goes out and trails like a German patrol. And this is really gross. But this is his way of trying to kind of send out the alarm bell to his superiors. He actually picks up uh, like remnants of German droppings and toilet paper and all that. Wow. And, and says, you know what? I'm going to put this in a manila envelope. I'm going to give it to my regimental commander. That'll wake him up for God's sake. You know, And 
and he does this because he's just he's just one of these larger than life ncos who you know ncos know everything we know we know that right and so we've established that um, yeah yeah and it's and and of course when it goes up to the to the colonel a a crusty old dude uh very cantankerous named colonel hurley fuller who commands 110th um, and he gets this delivery of a manila envelope and, uh, you know, that is supposedly <laughs> supposed to tell him of the gravity of what's going on. And he, he says, who the hell sent me this GD shit, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> and his staff officers are trying to kind of <laughs> quell the, the emotions there. But what, what Kuhn doesn't understand, and I think there's a classic example, like as, as soldiers, we only see what we see. Um, Fuller was just as concerned. He knew that he's basically holding a division or even a core size sector with a regiment. Um, and he had had quite a story too, is how he gets there as regimental commander. And so bottom line, he ends up sort of trying to sound the alarm bell, uh, to Dutch Coda, who's the division commander, who in turn is trying to tell Troy Middleton, eighth Corps, and Courtney Hodges, first army and Omar Bradley. 12th army group they all kind of know on some level but not well enough and uh, so when the offensive comes you can imagine how ferocious the fighting is in marnock uh, and how angry kuhn is thinking you know i told them this you know now here we yeah. are completely it's a house-to-house fight um and they do terrific damage to the germans and this yeah. this is the pattern you see in all kinds of little towns um all over the, that that 110th infantry regiment sector um, it's also it's, worth saying, sorry to interrupt, John, but it's yeah, also no, worth no saying that Dutch Cota is the same Dutch Cota on Omaha Beach of the 29th Infantry. Yeah. Yeah. So now he's got a division. Yeah. So he's a regimental commander then, isn't he? Well, he was a, um, on, on uh, Omaha Beach, well, he was, was the assistant. Exactly? He was yeah, the ADC. He's, he's he was the yeah. assistant division commander of the 29th Division That's as a it. one star. And obviously he performed brilliantly there. And so he gets his own division and he'd had it by the Hurtgen Forest. Uh, and some, some really criticize him for that. Um, I don't know if I, I really blame him for the hurt good for us. I think it's a higher level of blame, but, uh, but yeah, I mean that, and that's the other thing too, you know, so Coda is back at Wilts, um, which is another, you know, sizable Luxembourg town where division headquarters is a few miles back. And so it's just a classic kind of military thing of, oh, well at this higher level, they don't understand what's going on. We can't make them understand And Well, Coda does. He's just overwhelmed because his one division is going against the crux of this fifth panzer army, yeah. uh, which has to come through the area he, he is holding in order to get to Bastogne. Uh, oh, some, whatever it is, 10, 15 miles to the West. Uh, so the division is just sort of broken off into these chunks, uh, kind of isolated chunks, usually company size, maybe company plus some tanks or something like that, mm. that are fighting as hard as they can. And then when they're shattered, the, the survivors are going to kind of gravitate west if they're not captured. Um, yeah. And then maybe hook up with with more reinforcements that are coming in, just being thrown in the mix. So Fuller has this kind of climactic moment. Um, so so he's in Clairvaux, 110th Infantry is in Clairvaux. And he's he's at a place called the Clairvallis Hotel, which still exists. And and, uh, you know, he's he's on the phone to the chief of staff of the of the division, a guy named Gibney, and he's trying to tell him the 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 severity of the situation. There's literally German tanks right outside the Clairvallis. And and uh, mm-hmm. so basically Fuller is saying as a Texan, he's a Texan, he's saying I'm in the same position that Colonel Travis was in in the Alamo. 
And, uh, you know, when I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, that's it. It's Alamo and the Ardennes. I mean, that that's exactly what this is. Because it was. And Fuller's, like, trying to, to explain to him. And the chief of staff is like, I, I don't know. You know, we're we not sure we can get reinforcements. He's dealing with crises on every level. And um, and so then, almost on cue, this is, like, Hollywoodish. Uh, the German <laughs> tank pokes its muzzle through the window and unleashes a shell down the, the hallway outside, you know? And so you can imagine the boom, that's it. And, and the chief of staff was like, what was that? And, and uh, we're like, well, what I told you that uh, there's German tanks like, right outside. And, uh, yeah. and, the, and the chief of staff was like, well, uh, general code is at dinner and cannot be disturbed. And uh, you just do the best you can or whatever. It's like not real comforting. Uh, so no. Fuller and his HQ crew are basically flushed out of the Claravallis and uh, the Claravallis is sort of bordering this uh, ridgeline just to the West. And so there's this uh, like fire escape ladder. They, they climb out of and straight under the ridgeline. It's about, you know, 60 feet above street level, something like that. Uh, and they're lucky to get out of there, but then they, they're on this odyssey until they're finally rounded up by the Germans. And so, again, you kind of see that pattern time and again, sometimes with battalion commanders, company commanders, um, platoons that are hung out there to dry. I mean, but they cost the Germans precious time. And and that's the thing. This is what I was going to say, John, is, is in a, although they are spread, you know, uh, thin and and in in, you know, company, like you say, company companies in positions that should be held by regiments regiments you know uh, 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 up to divisions and all that nevertheless the way they're able to to use the terrain and and hold up because after all the the ardennes the ardennes uh suppose it was supposedly impassable but that means it's de- that means it's defendable if you've got people uh in it who are actively switched onto the fact they need to hold the germans up for as long as possible which is the what the french aren't in 1940 they haven't got they haven't got the the memo about how you deal with um armored warfare so so in although although these are disaster you know on the face of it disastrous dispositions uh, or, it does work out doesn't it? It, it in effect doesn't it in effect it does because it blows the german timetable and it costs yep. them a lot of um a lot of soldiers a lot of casualties and of course yep. as they're taking casualties it robs them of momentum too the, the Germans spent a lot of time kind of choke pointed in, in traffic jams from the sort of mechanized infantry point of view or tanker point of view. Um, the infantry point of view, they, they're spent a lot of time fanning out, trying to call in artillery on these sort of reluctant Americans who are holed up yeah. in buildings a lot of times or in these kind of prepared um, um dugouts or not dugouts but uh, like foxhole positions just outside of these these choke point towns um and marnock is really like the best example of that it's sort of the the touchstone of the whole thing uh and and of course you know the germans are constantly worried about the possibility of allied air coming in the equation well this first few days the weather's the weather's overcast it's not real snowy or anything like that not yet um but it's overcast and so the germans aren't they they have that freedom of movement, mm. but it's only going to last so long. Uh, mm. But it, it's so so then as the twenty eighth is kind of costing them those first couple of days, and and uh, you know later on von Menteufel, Hasso von Menteufel. This is the twenty eighth infantry division. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So von Menteufel, um, fifth Panzer Army commander, 
you know, later said, you know, when we didn't have Bastogne by the end of the second day, I, I knew that this wasn't going to work, that this, that something was really wrong. Yeah. Um, and he's right. I mean, that's, that's yeah. what he needed. So the 28th has cost him, it's going to cost him four solid days, really December 16th to 19th. Mm. In the meantime, um, CCR of the ninth armored is just thrown into this mix. Okay. So here's this guy, Colonel Joseph Duke Gilbreth command a CCR. So he's got a mix of tanks and an armored infantry who are hooking up with whatever's left of these 28 division rifle companies. And they're trying to hold this crossroads called Antionushaf. And, um, it's a nothing place. There's nothing there except the Germans have to have it as a waypoint onto Bastogne. Because it's a crossroads. Because it's a crossroads, exactly. It, it actually, it really reminds me almost eerily of the same pattern you see in um, in the American Civil War at a place called Chancellorsville um, yeah. in May 1863, right. which is another right. place that's, it's there's nothing there except one building and a crossroads, and yet everything kind of choke points into this massive battle. Mm. Um, same kind of pattern here because uh, Gilbreth's people are going to try and spread out there and, and stop what is the better part of the armored complement of the 5th Panzer Division, um, or 2nd Panzer Division, excuse me. So, you know, again, you're probably outnumbered by a factor of 3 to 5 to 1, maybe, something like that. So they fight to extinction, uh, pretty much extinction, to buy time then for the 101st. So the, So... The reason I bring all this up is that I think in popular memory, it's always through the 101st point of view of being yeah. at Mormalon and they wake you up and, you know, get on a truck and now here we're thrown into the mix and now we're holding Bastogne and we're the big difference makers. If you ever yeah. do hear references to those who have fought this battle to East, it's usually in talking about bedraggled people and shell shock people yeah. that you see filter into yeah. Bastogne and, and whatever. Well, of course this is the rest of the story. What happened to them? Um, you know, and, and I'll say this too, this is, this is kind of interesting. What, what kind of led me to the story uh, to the credit of the paratroopers is several guys from the 101st telling me about this uh, of saying, you know, gosh, we saw these guys and we had always thought, you know, what was going on? They didn't look like they wanted to fight. You know, we're, in other words, yeah. paratroopers are paratroopers. They always think they're there to save the day and they're the greatest yeah. soldiers and all that. And, you know, they're not always wrong. But uh, in this case, they're not these always guys, right either. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> like, so in, in this case, these guys had actually investigated it more and had developed a tremendous respect for the 28th Division and uh, and CCR, the 9th Armored, and so on and so forth, and, and said, you know, there's that's really when Bastogne was in crisis. But when you talk about when you talk about the 28th being absolutely hammered, I mean, you know, what are we talking about here? I mean, how how hammered is hammered? Well, 110th Infantry, Fuller's Regiment, um, pretty much ceases to exist. It um, it is destroyed. Dead wounded prisoner. Absolutely. Exactly. Almost everybody. Uh, so, I mean, I looked at the, the casualty rolls. It's it's 100% and, and upward. It's just it's just gone. Uh, Fuller himself is captured, and, and of course, many others are too. And the tragedy of this, I won't say tragedy, maybe that's not the right word, but the, the shame of it is that I, I think that the, the unit really deserved a presidential unit citation, but uh, SLA Marshall was convening a, a board that was starting to, to decide this, and he was more fixated on the airborne fights, because uh, that's where he had done his combat interviews, and obviously there's plenty of valor there. Um, and, and his, he didn't know anything about what was going on in the Bastogne corridor. And his impression was, well, that regiment just surrendered and melted away like the 106th division at the Schnee Eiffel kind of thing. He's yeah, totally yeah. wrong. 
Yeah. Uh, and I think that's kind of sad because this is this is definitely a fight to destruction thing. Um, you have the two other regiments that are kind of on the flanks. The 112th is to the north, and they right. have more of like a retrograde fight that then hooks them up with the 82nd Airborne, that whole right. kind of uh, fortified egg world over yeah. there um, on, on the northern shoulder of the bow. So they're not as bad off, though they really do some heavy fighting. To the south, the 109th also has this, you know, more orderly retrograde. And you know who was in command of the 109th by then? Uh, the famous Colonel Rudder, James Earl Rudder from oh, Point yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you had, obviously, a high-speed commander there, uh, but he's in a little better situation. It's the 110th that is truly in, like, the, the if you can imagine a hurricane coming straight toward you, the whole crux of it, it's right there in the center for the 110th. Mm. Um, and, and Fuller is a bad luck dude anyway. Um, he, he'd seen heavy combat in world war one. He had stayed in the army, but he was definitely, I mean, we've talked about all the, like the really famous and successful generals and all that, who were always like the fair haired boys who get promoted. Fuller wasn't one of those guys. He was, he was the leftover and, and, uh, and in Normandy, he had commanded the 23rd infantry regiment of the second division and had been relieved. Um, but he was friends with Middleton. And so he uh, he's kind of hanging around in Netherworld after Normandy, and he gets the 110th when its commander was laid up with a wound because of Hurricane Forest. And so Fuller then deals with that commander coming back, thinking he should be in charge, and then another guy who thinks he should be in charge, and trying to get to know his soldiers. Uh, many of his soldiers told me, and the, the neat thing was, this was back when we had World War II veterans, you could interview them. Um, yeah. Many of his soldiers told me, they just didn't think much of Fuller. They thought he was some desk jockey and they, they thought he was cantankerous, which was true. Um, and they, they just like, I don't really, you know, know anything or believe in this guy. They liked the previous guy, Strickler, who was really a, a fine commander too, but not in a position really to fight much at that point. So, um, so Fuller is just this, I think looking back at it as a story, and I think he's just this bad luck dude uh, who ends up in this terrible position and I think does the best he can yeah, but he's he's so I think one of the reasons why he doesn't advance in the ranks is he's so undiplomatic. Um, if Fuller were here today, I, I'm very confident if he were talking to us today within five to ten minutes, he would say something that would probably rub all three of us the wrong way somehow. He's, <laughs> he's just he's just one of those sandpaper people. Um, and I th- I don't think that helped him in his in his army career. It's just my opinion. <laughs> Cl- Clairvaux is an extraordinary place, isn't it? Because it's it's in this little kind of fold in the uh, you know it, you drop down into Clairvaux. There's a sort of ridge on the eastern side, isn't there? And then there's the, it's dominated by the the old castle. Uh, yeah. Th- so it's an impossible place to defend, isn't it? Really. I mean, it's it's totally. it's, it's 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 a it's a divisional base. It's not a or regimental base it's not a it's not a place to defend it's right and it's, it's just a, it's just a holding position it's, it's, it's being it's, used it's, as like, a... it's where you put your divisional staff or regimental staff or whatever it's it's not a place to, to defend you know that's up on the ridge and they they get thrown so there's no chance of holding it i mean you you just can't oh, no. hold that ground you can't i mean if the germans want it badly enough they're gonna get it um, the problem for the Germans is they don't really attack it all that intelligently. So Clairvaux had been used, you know, yeah, 110th Infantry Headquarters, but also as a resort town, like an R&R place uh, yeah. for guys who had been, you know, closer to the front outposting and all that. Um, but it's so basically the ridge lines on either side are going to make Clairvaux impossible to hold. 
so it probably makes a lot more sense, I think, though, from a German point of view to, to kind of envelop it and bypass it. Because once you do get down into that maw, now you're into close packed streets and then there's a castle there, like you said, Jim, that, that have been there a long time and is going to be basically like a uh, like a company, almost like battalion headquarters where the where the communications are and all that. And so the Americans are going to be able to really hold up in that castle and hold out for quite some time. So you have the castle with this group fighting there. And then about a mile up the road in Clairvaux is the Clarabalis hotel where Fuller and his guys are. Um, so basically they're going to, they're going to kind of stalemate and choke point the Germans through a lot of this fight. The Germans try and bring armor in there and it's really like twisting kind of roads. Um, so there's a, there's a platoon of tanks that Sherman tanks that, that fight almost this point blank engagement with them. Um, and then there's German infantry trying to just move forward in masses close to the castle, and they're getting picked off by American snipers one by one. Uh, it's yeah, just not a very intelligently kind of conceived attack because they don't expect this kind of resistance. And it, all they want to do is just go through the road because the road goes alongside the castle and then winds up to Clarivalis. So they figure, all right, we'll just go up there and beyond. Um, yeah, and just yeah. so people know, I mean, the scale of all this. So, so, so Clairvo is about... 14 miles, 12 miles, something like that. Not east of Bastogne. East, yeah. Slightly northeast yeah. of, of Bastogne. So you look at it on Google Earth, what what, what becomes quite clear is how, uh, just as you say, John, that although Clevo is somewhere you could you could bypass, if you get stuck in it, you're going to get stuck in it because it's on in an enormous bend. And the basically the town is in is in kind of in in two parts. And it meets, and they meet in the middle. And if you're if you're trying to yeah. get around the corner, you're not going to get around the corner. Um, and and that applies in either direction, I imagine. So you, 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 your opportunities as a defender for creating stalemate are pretty good. And the, the it is it is interesting though that you know that this is really the Germans' first proper attempt at sort of in the West at least against the, the West proper mobile. Well, I suppose. Well, I don't know. Maybe uh, Operation Lutich is another attempt at this kind of mobile thrust, that, that, that re-embracing mobile warfare as a way of disrupting the Allies. But, but yeah, we should just say that Lutich is the is the counterattack at the end of the Normandy campaign in August. The more what we're also known as the Mortain Mortain counteroffensive. Yeah. But but so they've forgotten some of the fundamentals, haven't they? Which is skip the places that are going to be tricky, bypass the sticky places. And, and and keep on moving, and it's very interesting that because after all, after all, you know, a big part of the reason uh, doing the Ardennes offensive appeals to Hitler so much is the location. You know, it's worked here before; it, it's a chance to reprise his greatest hits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you, you know, and all, and all that, and yet the and yet, obviously, it seems that some of the sort of fundamental principles that went into 1940 have been forgotten by 1944. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they, they clearly have. Um, I mean, because <laughs> this whole thing is just sort of convoy strung out along a road in, in many respects. But the problem they're running into as well is there aren't that many options if you're coming through this particular area. Um, you know, so if you're going to if you're going to sidestep around Clairvaux, you have to have Marnock, which they don't at the point that others filter into Clairvaux. And so it becomes very messy. And the problem they run into is like, OK, well, you know, you're held up at this town for, for a day and that town for two days. And, and so it's, it's a very kind of jumbled mix as you're trying to eliminate rifle company by rifle company, primar primarily the 110th Infantry Regiment. Um, so it becomes 
very messy and every minute that passes leads to more issues for them and more logistical issues. They're burning fuel too yeah. that they, they can't afford. Yeah. 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 Um, they're yeah. losing people. They're losing momentum. They're trying to keep morale up. Um, and yet really for the Americans, it's much worse because, you know, <laughs> you're confronted with having to quote, hold at all costs, which probably means sacrificing your life or becoming a prisoner. Or if you're really lucky, wandering about for days on end under terrible circumstances and somehow hooking up with an American unit to the West, um, which is what the 101st Airborne guys see when they get to the Bastogne area. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they're looking at is sort of the lucky survivors who have fought these horrendous engagements to the East and have then kind of filtered back. We need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Uh, given that, given that Bastogne is the is the is the nodal point, they're going to end up there, though, aren't they? Is the is, is part of it, isn't it? Is that is that the Germans will drive will drive these uh, dislocated soldiers into into Bastogne itself? So there's a there's a sort of self fulfilling reinforcement thing going on. To, to an extent, isn't there? Um, yeah, in Bastogne. all momentum goes to Bastogne. Exactly, of of every kind. So not not just mm -hmm. so so Bastogne has people turning up, going we basically who've who've been beaten, people you know, and and are spreading arguably could be spreading doom and gloom and panic, and people who think oh thank God we've been you know thank God you're here, uh, mm -hmm. you know uh, give me give me a 
give me some ammunition and we'll join in. And, and all that going, and also the Germans are definitely coming. It's the other thing. There's no, oh, yeah. there's, 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 sort of, <laughs> there's no doubt. There's no doubt about it because of, because of its, because of its position. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, one of the things that people say about, um uh, about, the summer of 1940s, you know, if you war game it a hundred times, the Germans only win the once or whatever, you know, the, um, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and this is them war gaming it again and, and losing the, the, mm-hmm. in, in the Ardennes, isn't it? It, it? In essence, it doesn't work this time because, because people are prepared to, as you say, to fight, fight, to the fight to the end. Why do you think they're prepared to fight like this? The Americans at this stage of the war, because we've already had, you, you know, we, you mentioned market garden earlier, one of the arguments about market garden why it goes why it goes wrong is that you know allied commanders have kind of got victory fever they think they think the germans are going to fold they think things are straightforward you know you've got you, you've definitely got british soldiers at arnhem saying well i'm you know the war's over i don't see the point in some of them saying i don't see the point in getting too stuck in let's not, let's not overdo it here why at this stage are people prepared to fight this desperately well, I mean, I think personally, the 28th Division and these other units are, are really good outfits. Um, right. I think I think they're led well. I think they have soldiers who have already proven that they're going to fight very, very well yep. previously in the war. Um, and, and I will say I, that's not true of maybe every unit. Um, I, don't, I hate to single out the 106th Division because, of course, they're in a terrible spot. Yeah, uh, really an almost hopeless situation. But I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't think that they're... Um, their performance matches up with what you see here in terms of costing the Germans more time. Um, that that's really my only issue with the 106. I think I have great sympathy for them, uh, but I, but I don't think they do the job, if we'll call it that, quite as effectively as you see the 28th Division, CCR of the 9th Armored, NCCB of the 10th Armored, and by the way, the 99th Infantry Division up on the northern shoulder there too, not too far from the 106. So I think part of it is just. Um, these were these were good quality units that had seen some combat uh, that had a mixture of new people and veterans uh, that but they were also in kind of an impossible situation and figured you know I'd better inflict some damage on the Germans before I go down I mean take some with me yeah yeah it's really stark I mean it really is and that's what really stood out to me is uh, for some from so many of these survivors who I, I got to know um, you know, any any subsequent life is just a bonus to them uh, that they ever even lived through this thing. Um, and of course, many of them experienced then the terrible uh, privation of captivity of, of being a POW. And that's a whole story. Yeah, and then room marches you know. at the end of the war and all the rest of it. Yeah, and and the march to the camps, you know, when they're right after they're captured and all, and the the cold and all that business, you know, so. Uh, no matter who you were, you were going to end up in an extraordinarily traumatic situation, fighting to the death, uh, being captured, running away and and hoping to, to find Americans somewhere. I mean, you know, and of course, there's plenty of people who fold the tent and don't fight as well as they should or whatever. But they're, I think they're nowhere near a large minority even. Um, so it's it's really, really fascinating to me because the 28th Division had been through a lot by now. I mean, they really fought hard in Normandy too. In uh, like in July, 1944, um, they had fought in the Siegfried line. Um, they, they had had really what was, I think the high point of the war for them, which was the, the, uh, the parade in Paris uh, in late August, 1944. But even then all they got to do was march through the town, 
and then leave. The fourth ID got to stick around in Paris for a night and have the fun you would have in Paris. 28 didn't, you know, and the 28th was such a hard fighting, hard luck unit in part then because of Hurtgen Forest, the bulge. But then guess what the reward is for uh, for fighting in the bulge so well? We're going to send you to the Colmar pocket, um, you know, in uh, in January, February, 1945. I mean, it's just yeah, presumably by was, then it's a kind of almost a new division, isn't it? It is totally a new division, except for, of course, staff officers and, you know, the usual kind of pattern. But uh, but and people coming back. But yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, here's your reward. We're throwing you in even in worse winter weather um, to fight this horrid battle. And, and then the division was just done. Um, so they were Pennsylvania National Guard. Uh, and their their symbol is the bloody bucket, which I think is terribly appropriate because um, they were in some of the worst fighting you could be in in the in the uh, European theater, you know. So uh, and and also, isn't that amazing, though, that you can just be a bad luck division? You know, you can just find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Over like and over the and Texans, over. like the T Patchers, like the thirty six. Yeah, don't yeah, you yeah. think? But, but does yeah. it not suggest yeah. someone thinks, well, they're really great in a fix? We should you, we should uh, right. We'll send you know, them, and the, then I think that's part of these the, guys there. If anyone could deal with it, it, it's them, and they they end up, you know, that that your that your uh, reliability in a bad bad spot becomes sort of your curse. I suppose. <laughs> it is because it's like <laughs> you can be relied upon when there's a crisis. Oh, yeah. wonderful, right? You know, and you know, and you know who does a lot of the heavy lifting is the engineers um, because mm. you you have these like. Um, engineer combat battalions that are either, you know, organic to the 28th or attached to them that are going to be really proficient at setting up roadblocks, um, you know, throughout various portions of the, of the Bastogne corridor that are really a headache for the Germans. And so that's, this is a kind of a shining moment for, for many of the engineers too, using whatever weapons they've got because the infantry is just getting beat to crap. Yeah. Uh, and so everybody else has to fight his infantry sort of, and that the engineers have this know-how too, in terms of mines and, and the, the, you know, the explosives and whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's just, just kind of an overwhelming thing that these guys deal with. And the climax of it all is of course, when the 101st does come into the equation by the 19th, 20th December. But remember they're combining with CCB of the 10th armored division in these task forces, so there's three, and, and I think this is terrifically significant. The actual fighting in Bastogne is not really in the town, though obviously the town is on the wrong end of air raids and artillery and all that. But it's not a building-to-building fight like what you see in Marnock, for instance, or whatever. Um, no, it's for these these uh, choke points outside of the town. Right. You know, And that's really the pattern. So these three teams, teams O'Hara, Cherry and, and Desobri set up in these various approaches and just wait for the storm now of the better part of, um, you know, 5th Panzer Army coming at them, especially 2nd Panzer Division. It, it's about defending the approaches, isn't it, it essentially? And uh, uh, that's why you're able to operate hospitals and whatever in, inside Bastogne, because you aren't doing you aren't actually doing the fighting there. Yeah, well, Foy is you know a couple of okay. miles out, isn't it? And you can see Foy it's on that them. main road. Yeah. It's, yeah. heading, it's one of the seven roads heading heading in or heading out, depending on which way you look at it. And yeah. Noville, but, but. especially. Uh, Noville yeah. is where some of the heaviest fighting takes place, uh, where Team Desabri is. And so that's um, the 1st Battalion of the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment uh, that, that's there. Of course, famously, Don Brigette is part of that fight. You have tank destroyers that are there. Uh, you've, got, you've got about 17 to 20 or so tanks. 
you know, from the 10th armored division that are there and, and armored infantry, you've got a real mix of people. Noville is some of the most violent fighting in the entire battle of the bulge. Um, but it, it is like the key node that you need in order to advance toward Bastogne. The Americans lose it, uh, but they inflict so much damage on, on uh, second panzer division that, um, they're getting nailed by, um, obviously, the American armor that's fighting in shadows. It's a very foggy battle, very difficult in terms of visibility. Um, there's a lot of close quarters bumping into one another in terms of the fighting. Um, small groups of infantry fighting building to building in that respect. But infantry can get close to tanks uh, to, to hit the tanks with bazookas and, and whatever else they may have, even grenades or whatever. So you have tank destroyers in the mix, too, and... Um, it's just, it's a really kind of chaotic, brutal fight uh, in which I think, you know, one of these parachute battalions is not necessarily fighting to extinction, but is suffering heavy casualties. And then, uh, you know, the tanks too are getting picked off, but the Germans are just totally losing momentum in this yeah. fight. I mean, it's, it's almost pointless in a way. Um, so <clears throat> all of this has only happened because so much time has been bought to the east by the 28th division, by CCR, the 9th armor to that, like at Antionushoff, which I, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, so it's a, it's really an interesting sequence that you see. Uh, and so by the time of like December 20th, the pattern has become the Germans dealing with these, these teams, these, these armored and infantry and engineer teams east of Bastogne, like team Desabri, Cherry and O'Hara and very heavy fighting going on there, but it's just sort of the Germans are kind of, kind of gravitate around that and, and begin to just kind of surround Bastogne. Um, and that, that's, you know, the more famous part of this, but really ironically enough, kind of less violent. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know. Yeah. And, and, it, and, but, and, and although it's, although it's bloody, it's not, it's not fighting to the last man. It's not that business of killed, wounded or captured. Is it? It's, it, it, it's, much more organized. It's much more, uh, uh, well, it's being supplied for a start. I mean, it, 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 you know, at least that's happening. Whereas the 28th guys, they're just, they're just doing what they can as they can for as long as they can. Um, as long as they can and then falling back. Yeah. yeah. Falling back. Yeah. And some yeah. of them end up in Bastogne, um, you know, resting in basements, getting first aid or fighting here and there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, just kind of a mix, but, uh, and, and, yeah. and by the time Pat, Patton's armor arrives, it's kind of, it's all over anyway, isn't it? I mean, it is. I mean, to me, I would argue the battle is anticlimactic in that sense. Now, you know, it's, it's a sucky period in the sense that, you know, a couple days before Christmas now, you know, you're surrounded. It's gotten, the weather's gone crossways in the sense of snow and cold and, and, uh, at, at times, and then it's cleared up too, which helps the supply drops into Bastogne and all that. Um, and, you know, so you're in crisis to be sure, but, um, it's not quite, these hellacious battles we've been talking about. So when the fourth armor division gets there on December 26th, um, the battle has kind of been decided if in terms of Bastogne's meaning now, right. by this point, it's become a symbol like, Oh, the Americans are holding onto it. They're rallying around that in the allied world. Now we got to take it and eliminate Hitler being Hitler. Of course, he's going to go in that direction. And this isn't yep. really to the betterment of what the Germans say they're supposed to be doing here. Uh, and then, of course, the bad news for them when the weather does clear, now we can resupply Bastogne. And, of course, now we can have all sorts of airstrikes on these strung out columns that are everywhere. And, man, that is that's really bad news for the Germans at that point. Um, you know, so but if if we are at Bastogne, though, 
during this time frame. It's now it's no fun though, right? I mean, because we've had an air raid uh, that has done terrific damage to the town, um, killed civilians and military alike. Uh, medically, we're in crisis because the, the 101st Airborne loses the better part of its whole medical company during one of these confused crossroads fights early on when it gets there. Um, and so, you know, you're you're definitely just sort of improvising as much as you possibly can with uh, any kind of medical equipment you can scratch up. And, you know, they're tearing up bed sheets to use as bandages and things like that. Um, it's certainly in crisis, but you know, in terms of the larger purpose of the Battle of the Bulge, Bastogne really has lost much, much value, I guess I would yeah. argue. Yeah. Uh, and the, the Germans don't really have any other options, do they, is the is the point. Um, because Not really. Well, this, this goes all the way I mean, back to Rommel and to Brook and, and yeah. you know, the Gazala line. It, it, you, you, you can't just go around it. You've got to confront it at some point. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, so you've got to take it because all the roads lead in there and lead out again. And you can, to a certain point, you can you can go around it, but you you can't leave it like that. You've got to you've you've got to take it. And and of course, that's going back to Tobruk. I mean, the whole point was was you don't need Gazala line because you just hold Tobruk. Rommel can only go past Tobruk for so long. <laughs> At some yeah. point, you're going you know you're going to do a strike out of out of Tobruk and 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 hit his supply lines, and yeah. it's the same principle here. It's exactly the same. You know, the Germans can 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 fly onto Antwerp. If, you know, if they can you know they can keep going west and, and and outflank it to the north and to the south if they want to. And of course, that's exactly what they do. But but mm-hmm. while it's still in American hands, you've you've got to turn and deal with it because you can't just leave it there. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. Yeah. Especially because yeah. the Americans are reinforcing now, too. Yeah. So you have, you know, you've got the 4th Armored coming into play. You've got the 75th Infantry Division coming into play. You know, they're all sort of attacking north. <laughs> now you're in a situation where you're holding on to this area around Bastogne and dealing with that, yeah. in addition to trying to move north. So there's so many moving parts for the Germans at this point. Now, if they get Bastogne on December 17th, it's you're still going to have the same reaction, of course. But you, you might say that it could have provided a lot more support to that momentum of the northern push, which is where the most powerful German units are during the bulge. Yeah. And, and maybe you're, you're going to be able to get across the MERS or, or something like that. I, I don't know. But I mean, one of the big problems for the Germans is also is, is that then, you know, no one who's in this really understands what it is they're trying to do. I mean, yes, OK, they're trying to get to Antwerp and split the Allies in two. But, you know, really? I mean, right. you know, you can't believe me that Manteuffel thinks that that's, that's realistic. And so so there's this whole kind of sort of, what, what do we do? Do we do we really go all out for Antwerp when we know we haven't got the fuel for that and the ammunition for that? Or do we turn and face and deal with Bastogne and Noville and... Foy and all the rest of it, you know what? We, you know what are we trying to do? So there's this kind of sort of mixed message right from the top, and their instinct is, well, here's the enemy, we're going to have to turn and deal with them. The fact that they do that is is partly because they've got to, because the Americans are there and they've got to turn and face them. But it's also because the ultimate aim of what they're trying to do is just a bit woolly and a bit muddy, and that's because it is a bit woolly and muddy, and that's because it's come out of Hitler and no one else and everyone thinks it's a bonkers idea but he's the Fuhrer and what the heck you know well, it's we've got to do it and, and it's just yeah well it's woolly and muddy as well because the, the, the if, if the thing you're really trying to achieve is to get to enter everyone knows that's impossible so right. you end up do you end up well we'll do something then I suppose because they, they they've you know 
That's just caused maximum amount of damage, but actually, the the boss, haven't they? I mean, it's a a, a, an unenviable. It's an unenviable set of circumstances. Those that those making those decisions and running this operation have got themselves into. But you know, uh, no sympathy for them. It's like Mortain on a greater scale. Exactly, exactly, and um, and you know, look how that went. I mean, well, exactly, and there's yeah, there's no question that the the, you know the Allies are going to concede in the north and that the, the northern shoulder is going to you know the, the german right flank is going to pop open and even then if it does you're not meaningfully over the mers anyway you know uh, at spa out of out of malmedian up to spa it doesn't make any sense and then he, even if you're pushing even if you do get to dinor then what because you're eminently you're in a salient you're eminently surroundable and cut offable and just d- destructible aren't you i mean it's a it's all it's 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 all very it's very all strange, isn't it? It's yeah. all bonkers. bonkers. Yeah. Well, yeah. and the way they use their air power, nighttime yeah. raid on Bastogne or whatever. Yeah. When you know what you ought to be doing, maybe is to to use it to protect your columns somehow yeah. from yeah. Allied airstrikes. I mean, crazy me. I mean, maybe that's what you ought to be doing. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but the, you know the other thing too that's always struck me about the Battle of the Bulge as a whole, and this, this is a bigger conversation, but still worth mentioning, I think, is that. In a way, Hitler has great insight to the future, but he also is not in touch with reality as usual. So, yes, this coalition that he's trying to break apart, you know, the Western allies and the Soviets, it's going to go away. It's 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 yeah. vulnerable and there, it will not hold. Yes. Uh, but he doesn't understand that the one thing that will always hold it together is his continued existence and presence. Yeah. yeah. As long as that's happening, right. they will hang together and they will see it through to the end. Then they'll fight, you know, but... Uh, so that's what, in a way, that's what he's trying to achieve with the bulge is to stagger the Western world so that there's a reexamination of this alliance with the Soviet Union and the Germany first policy and all that sort of makes sense, but doesn't really grasp the, the, the essential nut of it, that what's brought them together is him yeah. <laughs> and his yeah. monster of an empire that he's got. <laughs> and until it's eliminated, they, they will stay together. I mean, the, the, uh, if we're talking broader about, I mean, had the had the I always wonder had the Ardennes offensive not gone ahead, what that would have given the Germans for the remaining six months of the of the war, you know, in terms of men and materiel and and defensive possibilities and and all that sort of stuff, you know, and rawly in terms of fuel and gear and ammunition, that would would the would the spring that followed. Have been a, a, a an even grittier and bloodier affair for the Allies. Would you, or would would the British and Americans actually have got across the Rhine sooner, um, pop pop things open sooner, and you know the war come to a quicker and let and less you know murderous conclusion, or 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 is it all swings and roundabouts anyway? And that after all, this kind of thing is inevitable with Hitler's thought processes and decision making style. The, 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 the Ardennes offensive anyway. But I always wonder, you know, the, the, the what if this doesn't happen rather than what if it's, what if it succeeds is, is, is the one not worth bothering thinking about because it can't. But what if it doesn't happen? Because it could not happen. Oh, definitely. What I, does I think that do to the German, the German, German effort in the year that, the, you know, in, in the following year? We would have dealt with a lot of ferocious counterattacks, I think. Yeah. Um, what the, what the bulge proved is that Hitler still had, a decent amount of really committed and somewhat fanatical manpower in those SS units, um, yeah. 
even in the Volksgrenadier outfits, yeah. there were people who were willing to fight. And of course, they still pretty, pretty weapon rich um, in, in the Reich. You know, there was a lot of good weapons they still had. Um, of course, they're running out of a lot of resources, but I think there's still a lot of fight in them. Yes. And I, I think it would have manifested itself in the typical kind of German doctrine of counterattacks wherever we're trying to move forward. Yeah. And I think that would have been a real problem to deal with. Yeah. Yeah, it's only my opinion. I don't know. Well, no, I, I, I mean, I, 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 I think I'd agree with that because, because after all the fighting in, you know, uh, that follows uh, the Ardennes campaign is hard enough anyway. All of those British, those British actions like Black Cock and Veritable and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That well, that yeah, comes... and American casualties in in March are horrific. Yeah, and in April, a, in, well, April in April, our yeah. casualties in the U.S. Army are almost as high as they had been during the Battle of Normandy. Believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. 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 So, so in a so in a peculiar way, the men who hold up the Ardennes offensive do us all do us all a great big favor. Big in, time. In, you know, and uh, and in fact, Hitler, in a sense, does the Allies a favor by by uh, you know betting or putting all these chips on this yeah. offensive, gambling hoisted by his own batard. Exactly. Yeah. Bringing them out yeah. to fight in an offensive where they're really vulnerable and they really take terrible losses, of course. And but yeah. that's also why I, I do think the the uh, the 110th Infantry deserves a presidential unit citation. Yeah, because I don't know that there's mm. any other, you know, regimental size unit we could point to in the bulge that that makes as big a contribution uh, to to thwarting whatever the ultimate purpose of this offensive would have been. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. It is yeah. fascinating, and every sec, every minute of wastage is is you know is saving the Allies from. Like we say, these these this this counterattack stuff yep. that could have happened in the in the spring. I mean, the fact yep. that what once the British are over the Rhine and Vesel, it sort of it does the Germans do fall in on themselves, but they're still. I mean, their willingness to fight continues until the war ends. And you know, and rather than it being uh, teenagers with Panzerfaust, you'd have had, you know, you'd have had a considerable yeah and you'd have a bit more armor and you'd have had a bit more a bit more armor, a bit more experienced chaps doing it yeah well and maybe it has a bigger on the eastern yeah. front especially too that well, a that, lot of the resources too. have been used there oh well well thanks john uh, it's absolutely fascinating well, it's another place As usual, we're just for, scraping into the beginning to. of the discussion right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant well thanks very much for that um uh uh, thanks everyone for listening. That's real. That's real food for thought to make to make Isn't us look it? away from Bast- from the 101st Airborne at Bastoid. Somehow drag our attention away from those Airborne Glamour <laughs> Boys for five minutes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.